Hello everybody and thank you for joining me today on this episode of Activist Lawyer. Today our episode features three guests, Professor Shane Darcy, who is the Deputy Director of the Irish Centre for Human Rights in the School of Law, University of Galway, along with Ramez Hayek and Nadine Youssef, who are both Palestinian students currently studying for an LLM at the Irish Centre for Human Rights. So we are continuing with our series of um, asking lawyers for their legal analysis and perspective on what is happening in the occupied territories as Israel continues its aggression on Gaza and indeed throughout the region. You'll remember that we spoke with Dr Munir Nusaiba in advance of the ICJ ruling in the case of South Africa against Israel under the Genocide Convention. So now we're at the stage where we are going to look at the aftermath of that ruling and we have some excellent information and insights from our guests. I actually recently heard a commentator refer to the legal activity around this matter as a slow snowball effect and I can (laughs) get what they're saying. It feels like cases are progressing, there's shifts in opinions and mindsets and that's becoming more apparent as the result of pressure I suppose from both international and domestic courts Um, continue. However, the violence and the onslaught has not stopped and has in fact intensified. So we are going to discuss all of that today and I'm very grateful for our guests for joining us and I hope you've enjoyed this series. We're going to continue with it and remember to follow us, like us, share us and um, yeah, enjoy this one. So we are at well over four months into Israel's aggression on Gaza and its increased military um, onslaught across the region, across the occupied territories. So we're going to take a look at some of the recent legal activity. Now we know, and we've discussed already, that South Africa has charged Israel with genocide under the Genocide Convention. And in respect of provisional measures raised by South Africa, the ICJ has delivered a ruling. And that's what we're going to look at firstly. So thank you all three for joining me. Thanks, Sarah. Sarah, for having us. Thank you for having us. So first... Can we perhaps address the ICJ's ruling? Uh, yeah, for sure. Um, I think it's important first to talk about uh, how historic this ICJ ruling is because it, em- it emphasized the need for immediate action to prevent genocide and also further atrocities against Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Also here, it's important to mention that Israel, which has denied basically any charges of genocide, had hoped to have the case thrown out entirely. But the ICJ refused to do so, saying that actually South Africa had successfully shown that at least some of Israel's actions in Gaza might violate the Genocide Convention. Now, in terms of what was delivered by the court, uh, basically, first, the ICJ affirmed its jurisdiction under the Genocide Convention, recognizing the existence of the dispute between the two parties, Israel and South Africa. And then the court established that at least some, uh, at least some uh, of some South Africa's claims under the genocide conventions were deemed plausible. So it suggested the the plausibility that Israel may be committing genocide against Palestinians. Now, in terms of orders, there were six orders from the court, Mm -hmm. all of which are really significant. And of course, all of which, uh, like they are not, they have not been taken by Israel. These include measures to prevent genocide. So there were clear instructions for Israel to take immediate actions to prevent genocide, the prohibition against uh, the commission of genocide, so explicit directive to refrain from such atrocities in South Africa basically had a clear case of how Israel is committing different acts of genocide. And the um, 
and trade humanitarian aid to enable the provision of essential medical aid, uh, health, food, water to the strip, uh, prevention of incitement. So it ordered to seize all actions that could incite genocide and preservation of evidence. So there was a directive to safeguard evidence for accountability. And lastly, uh, reporting requirements. And so the court instructed Israel to report back within 30 days. Um, So these are the main six orders that were um, instructed Mm -hmm. by the court. And just stemming on from that, um, the court's jurisdiction in terms of a ceasefire. So we know that there was criticism of a perceived failure by the court to call for an immediate ceasefire. How can we explain that? And why did the court not call for a ceasefire uh, specifically? Um, yes, so definitely there was a lot of criticism, especially among Palestinians. But to be honest, I still see even although the court did not call for a ceasefire, I still think it's a very significant uh, decision. And I think here it's important to understand the nexus between the underlying claim and the provisional orders issued by the ICJ. Now here the primary focus was on preventing genocide, mm-hmm. so it aligns with the core claim of the case. I think the court probably lacks the authority to order a ceasefire since Hamas as a non-state actor is not party to the, to the proceedings. Sure. So the ruling underscores the imperative to prevent all acts that could be deemed genocidal in accordance with the Genocide Convention. But since Hamas is not a party, I don't think the court could mm-hmm. like uh, order um, a ceasefire. So, but, but here it's important to mention that actually Actually, the only way to abide by these orders is for a ceasefire sure. to happen. I think implicitly that was yeah. the aim. And here it's important to distinguish between the case of Ukraine and, and Russia. I think because both parties were, uh, both parties to the armed conflict were present in the courtroom, I think it was easier for the court to actually order not a ceasefire, but basically it says that the military operation has to stop. But since Hamas was not, the party for the proceeding yeah. this would be the reason. Because mm-hmm. there was um, some confusion around that. But I guess when we look at what was ordered, it is implicit within that. Um, and before we really get to the, the actions subsequent to that ruling by Israel and, and allies supporting Israel, Shane, I wonder, could just from a procedural point of view, could you take us through what's next, what happens within the ICJ next, um, the next steps, perhaps? Yeah, thanks, Sarah. So, I mean, Ram has already mentioned when he talked about the six provisional measures what the next stage is, and that is that Israel has to uh, report back to the court uh, within one month, and that's in the coming that's in the coming days. Mm-hmm. Uh, South Africa had sought weekly reports, um, but the court granted a, an order for a, a report within one month. Um, in Myanmar versus Gambia, it was in, within four months. So, this kind of reflects the urgency. I think, of these proceedings. I mean, it's less than two months since South Africa filed the case. We had hearings in, in early January, the provisional order uh, two weeks later. So things are moving quite quite quickly. Now, in terms of that report, it's not a public report. It goes to the court. Um, South Africa will also see it, see it um, but it's not, it's not made public, which is a shortcoming in terms of that part of the proceedings. But it is relevant because, of course, it, it will inform the court as to whether um, Israel is complying firstly with the provisional measures order, but also then with whether it's complying with its obligations under the under the Genocide Convention. Um, in terms of the, the later stages of proceedings, um, 
you know, just recently we saw South Africa seeking additional provisional measures. We're also hearing discussion about state interventions. So already Germany has stated they're going to intervene in the case. I think Nicaragua also stated that they're going to intervene. And then that generates a lot of um, political discussion back in capitals as to whether countries should be intervening. I know Ireland, um, Minister McEntee said she would support Ireland intervening. Um, but we need to be a, a little cautious here because there may be downsides to the states intervening. Okay. Um, to join the case and become a part of the case, I think, would really would really change the nature of it because it's not something we see too often. They're generally bilateral cases. Occasionally, we might see two or more states make a case together and approach the court. But South Africa is doing this on its own, and actually, I think South Africa is well in control of its brief. And having another state trying to join it, I think, could complicate matters. Then there's the question of intervening, where states, like several dozen did in Ukraine versus Russia, they make an intervention to the court in relation to an interpretation of the convention, or perhaps if they have a legal interest. Um, that's also not without its downsides, because it can lead to delay in the proceedings. Uh, and in, in any event, in Ukraine versus Russia, uh, the court wasn't really persuaded by the arguments that, that those intervening states have, have put forward. But the two main stages then are preliminary objections and then the merits. So the preliminary objections is where the parties will make more substantive arguments around jurisdiction, uh, admissibility, around the existence of this dispute. That will take um, that'll take a couple of years. So the court just issued the preliminary objection judgment in Ukraine versus Russia. So just under two years after Ukraine filed the case. And then the final stage then is the merits, actually considering the substantive arguments of the case. And that, that will take that will take a number of years. You would anticipate maybe three to four years. There are examples of these cases taking a considerable length of time in the Bosnia, the Serbia case. There was almost almost a decade between the preliminary objections and the, the merits. Uh, it was 14 years in total, so a very, very long case. Um, but you would expect that it wouldn't take that long mm -hmm. uh, today. Okay. Um, well, last week, the ICJ declined to grant a further urgent provisional measure that was requested by the South African legal team. Um, and that was to prevent Israel acting on their statement that they would commence a military offensive in, in Rafah. So, um, Nadine, maybe you could explain, you know, why this wasn't granted. There again seemed to be a huge disappointment around this um, particular request being denied and what impact, if any, might this have on the case in general going forward? Um, so South Africa has indeed um, requested for additional measures uh, due to the urgency uh, of, of the matter. So South Africa could have pursued an other avenues within the ICJ's jurisdiction to request um, these additional requests that are ge geographically specific by, for instance, um, requesting other uh, Article 76, Paragraph 1, to modify the existing provisional measures based on a uh, change in situation. Mm -hmm. But again, it shows the most uh, or like the fastest way to invoke a legally binding measure, which is under Article 75, uh, Paragraph 1. Um, however, uh, we need to um, be aware that this was only used in one case before and approved by, uh, or at least not used, approved by the court only one time before and it was concerning um, a German national um, who uh, received a life sentence um, in the US. So it, it was far removed from the context of, of, of a plausible genocide as is the case here. Um, and um, 
but what South Africa uh, has actually done and what was hoping in, in requesting these additional measures is for the court to do to realize the urgency mm-hmm. um, and the threat that millions of lives of people um, of Gazans. Yes. So, I mean, as Nadine was saying, that, that South Africa's order, the, the court didn't give these additional provisional measures, but I don't think that undermines the original provisional measures because, in, in fact, the court used almost stronger language uh, in the in what was released from the court, saying this is a perilous situation mm-hmm. uh, and it demands immediate and effective implementation of the provisional measures. So, again, reflecting the urgency of the situation and saying Israel is bound to ensure the safety and security of Palestinians in the Gaza Strip. Um, but I think these these sort of proceedings that happen within the overall case are also important. They demonstrate, in some respects, the position of the parties. So Israel, in its written response, um, said that it rejects South Africa's case entirely, which almost goes against the court's order for provisional measures, because, as, as Ramos had said, the court found a plausible case for genocide. They also tired South Africa as being a long-time Hamas ally, ally even though the lawyers and South Africa have condemned 7th of October, and the Israeli submission contains a, an admission that the situation in Gaza is not qualitatively different from several weeks ago, which almost is an admission that they haven't complied with the provisional measure orders to date. So within, we'll see many of these little bits and turns within the case as it, as it yeah. proceeds. So the language is important in that and almost bolsters the original case as such, so possibly has an impact in that, in that regard. So Nadine, um, just an, another question, kind of staying on state action. I mean, the aggression appears to have worsened, we've said already, on, on many levels since the ICJ ruling. Um, will there be any repercussions by the ICJ or any other institutions? Or, you know, does this simply strengthen South Africa's case? Yeah, um, it has indeed uh, worsened. But in terms of any repercussions by the ICJ itself, I don't think that's going to happen. It's not within the power or authority of the court to impose any form of of, of punishment or uh, repercussions. Um, However, as mentioned earlier, the the responsibility, the main responsibility of enforceability and holding Israel accountable to its actions lays within uh, the power of uh, third state parties and uh, states in general. So, they have the responsibility to prevent um, uh, to prevent genocide, um, and they can themselves be held accountable if they fail to do so or are found complicit in enabling the commission or the sustainment of the acts of genocide. So, matter of fact, we have also repercussions that can fall on uh, third states, and one of the ways in which the situation has heightened and got worse is um, by several states deciding to cut funds to the honor Yeah. Um, and as has been pointed out by the Lincoln Institute, this is decisions by uh, decision by countries like the U.S., the U.K., Australia, Austria, Canada, and all of and so on, uh, represents a shift from a potential complicity and genocide to direct involvement in engineered uh, famine. And so the repercussions within this context become a possible individual uh, liability cases that can be referred to the ICC later on 
but as my um, uh, colleague Ramit said and Professor Shane, um, the ICC has unfortunately proven. Just in terms of the ICJ um, ruling in general, for anybody who's come new to international law and to, and to um, the court and all of the mechanisms associated with it, um, the particular ruling in the case brought by South Africa will be binding, but it cannot be enforced. So how does it work? Does it essentially fall on the international community to respond and to act? Or, you know, how do we ensure um, if Israel does not comply with any decision that comes from the court that this stops? What, what, how does it play out even politically? Even though the decision is final and binding, but the court does not have um, the power to enforce it. So enforcement um, of the ICJ um, ruling falls directly under the authority of the UN Security Council if we're talking about UN uh, organs. Or alternatively, we're talking about also states. Um, and beyond um, um, the UN, there's also the ICC. But um, the problem with um, enforceability under the UN Security Council is that it is subject to veto power. And we all know that how that usually goes for cases concerning Palestine and the rights of Palestinians um, to, uh, to justice. Um, and we know that the U.S. has used its veto power at least um, 35 times uh, so far to block U.S. Security Council resolutions um, to hold Israel accountable against its um, actions against Palestinians. And within the context of this unprecedented war and humanitarian catastrophe and all the indiscriminate bloodshed, the U.S. has so far since October 7th vetoed three motions um, or draft resolutions at the uh, Security Council demanding an immediate and permanent ceasefire. And the latest one has uh, just happened uh, yesterday. Um, So this is as how far it can go for uh, Security Council uh, trying to enforce and implement Mm. these uh, provisional measures and orders. Um, But but, so the main main, uh, responsibility becomes uh, and the authority lies within the hand of of uh, states. This um, this binding ruling has invoked um, the responsibility on all state parties, and even not on, on and even on states who are not um, a party to the convention yeah. of uh, the genocide to um, fulfill their duty to uphold their duty of preventing genocide. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's that's clear, um, and it, you, we can we can look at that. But what what Nadine has the international? How have they reacted? I mean, if it is a case that they have their you know have to comply with their own obligations, whether they're under the genocide the party to the genocide convention or not, the aggression has worsened um, since the ruling came out, and I'm just wondering. Has there been any movement um, by uh, the Allies? Um, I may be thinking in terms of um, the provision of weapons, for example, would be one way of um, supporting um, any ruling or any decision that came forward, and not even a decision at this stage, but even the ruling in respect of their provisional measures. Have we seen anything that's notable in terms of um, how other states party to the Convention are, or, or not indeed, are preventing genocide? Um, we have, um, as we said, like there have been um, some positive uh, reactions to the decisions 
and uh, people lending the ruling uh, as a as a as a way to utilize. If we want to talk about first um, the work of civil state organizations, they uh, many of them have utilized this to mobilize further mobilize their advocacy and lobbying efforts against local governments, enterprises, and other relevant entities to abide by the legal obligations invoked by uh, the decision. Mm-hmm. Um, so on the, fir- on the same day of the ruling, for instance, uh, Oxfam uh, started urging the UK government to respect the ICJ ruling and to immediately stop arms sales to Israel. And here in Ireland, we have, uh, on a grassroots level, we have worked on, uh, on petitions that began way before the ruling, but uh, since the ruling, there have been intensified calls on Ireland as a state party to the Convention to abide by its obligations and to impose sanctions and to cut uh, uh, um, um, relations, um, uh, diplomatic relations um, yeah. as needed. Uh, and there's also a growing movement within the Irish public. So, for instance, tonight, uh, the Irish state is due to vote on a comprehensive motion calling on the Irish government to, uh, among other other things, impose sanctions on Israel, uh, to enact uh, the Occupied Territories Bill and the Illegal Israeli Settlement Divestment Bill, and to actively ensure no U.S. weapons are being sent to Israel through Irish airspace, and to push for an international arms embargo on on Israel. Um, so, uh, yeah, there is a push for sanctions by several governments, and that's what we need to be seeing uh, among all other states. And there is also, as Professor Shane mentioned earlier, um, consideration by a number of states to to intervene, regardless of whether it's going to be uh, a positive sure. step to take or get things more. But still, it's it's a it's a, it's a step that can be uh, at least mm-hmm. recognized and appreciated. Um, and also on the level of uh, cutting clear cutting off of relations in the arms trade sector and weapons. Uh, we have a little uh, over a week ago, the Dutch High Court ruled um, that the Netherlands is banned from continuing to export uh, uh, its export of F-35 parts after a lawsuit was filed against the state. And the court has found that there is a clear uh, and a severe risk of ISL violations if such uh, exports are things. Uh, similarly, we also have uh, a Japanese firm that... Um, will be terminating its col- collaboration with Elvis system by the end of this month, which, again, a decision that came as a direct response and compliance to uh, the ICJ's order among, uh, upon states to prevent acts of genocide by utilizing all possible means in their power um, um, uh, and to ensure that they respect um, such an obligation. And here it's important to note that when we say utilize all possible means it's it's basically a message to all the states that are reluctant or hesitant to take any tangible measure Mm -hmm. because they say oh what impact our sanctions will have or what impact will our boycotting will have or cutting the diplomatic relations and so on but it's about the collective um collective efforts of all states uh that will amount to something eventually uh but Indeed, the ICJ in, in, in previous rulings, especially in, uh, in the Bosnia um, and Serbia in 2007, they recognized that there is indeed a heightened responsibility that falls on states who have 
um, political, economic, and whatever leverage they can have on on Israel. Uh, I mean, on on uh, on the perpetrator in that case, but in our case, on Israel, and obviously, such heightened responsibility falls on all of its Western allies and uh, Arab allies. Um, so, like they have, for instance. Um, so we're definitely seeing a, a shift, I guess, and some very tangible um, examples there. And I guess just remaining on that question, um, Ramis, perhaps just looking at the UN and the associated international institutions and mecha- mechanisms. I mean, at this stage, are they really fit for purpose? And given what we've seen in, in recent months um, and, and decades, not just in relation to Palestine, but what Nadine had mentioned there and, and Shane had mentioned as well about the, the veto, the, the fact that allies can shield Israel very, very easily and nothing progresses. I mean, is there a real lack of faith um, going forward in these institutions? Or how do you view that in terms of um, their validity in a wider context? Um, I think it's a yes and no answer. I think if you asked me this question maybe a year ago, I would definitely say no because I had like a lot of problems with the United Nations. But I feel like after what is happening, like given what's happening now, I think it's just it's the states that are actually exploiting and manipulating like these institutions. I don't necessarily think it's the issue uh, of the organizations themselves. But here, I think it's important to like to talk about like the historical initiatives and attempts of Palestinians first and then evaluate whether these uh, institutions have been or can be considered fit. Mm-hmm. So we all know that all Palestinians have employed various strategies to secure their rights, uh, especially the right to self-determination and the establishment of independent states. This included armed resistance, peace negotiations, economic um uh, like economic boycotts, civil society activism, but most of these, if not all of these attempts have been either condemned or have been resisted by Israel and its allies, most notably the US and the UK. So armed struggle was, of course, demonized and still demonized by the West. Peace negotiations, particularly the Oslo Accords, failed to, de- failed to deliver the promise of um, statehood and led to the fragmentation of Palestinian society. Um, Attempts to call for a boycott in line with the BDS movement were accused of being anti-Semitic by many Western states. Mm-hmm. Um, and even civil society, human rights organizations in Palestine have been designated as terrorist organizations by Israel. So this left Palestinians with very limited options, which are like going to these international organizations, notably the United Nations, the ICJ, the ICC, uh, the ICC. So I would say, like for example, let let's take Honor War for example. In like previously, Honor War was had a lot of like uh, had received a lot of criticism by Palestinians and Palestinian civil society members because it was politicized, manipulated by the U.S. But I feel like now. Palestinians start, started to realize that actually, although they ha- like there are many shortcomings of these organizations, they're still very important because they are the, one of the remaining avenues that Palestinians have to actually gain their rights. Mm-hmm. Now, as Nadine has said, the problem with the ICG, ICJ and the ICC is the lack of an enforcing authority. So we have seen in the South Africa case, Israel has not attempted to stop its military operation. 
In fact, it pressures states to defund UNRWA, for example, about to pass even a legislation to dismantle UNRWA in East Jerusalem. And as Nadine and Shane have said, that um, they're starting to wage a large-scale invasion. Now, can we say that it's the problem of these organizations? I think it's a yes or a no questions. I feel like, like for example, the ICJ decision is historical. It's very significant, but the lack of an enforcing authority makes it quite problematic. But I think it's the fault of the states because the states keep giving impunity for Israel to commit whatever they want, mm-hmm. and they constantly justify it through the pretext of self-defense. Um, so I think it leaves the like it leaves uh, these international organizations, yeah. like vulnerable to exploitation and uh, political manipulation. Now, I would say like the ICC specifically is a different case, just because. I feel like in this specific circumstances, I lost all hope and trust in the ICC. And I feel like a lot of Palestinians have, uh, feel the same way because it just showed the impartial, like uh, it basically showed that the ICC is biased, specifically like the current prosecutor, because Palestinian civil society have constantly, have constantly, uh, like, have been working with the ICC, like constantly told the prosecutor to come to the West Bank, to talk to the victims, to do a lot of things for Palestine. And even like now, more than four months since uh, the war started and, and like nothing is nothing is happening. Yeah. And the only time when Israel was attacked, he actually went to Israel yeah, and talked to, the, talked to the, yeah, talked with the victims, uh, and also, even like to show you the, the double standards of the ICC, for example, the prosecutor initially only wanted to meet with Palestinian victims only for 10 minutes, just 10 minutes. And a lot of Palestinians were saying, like, n- it's, it's impossible for them to talk about the human rights violations that, have been, that they have been subjected to only for 10 minutes. But of course, the meeting lasted for one hour, but that's not the case. Like, it just shows the double standards of some international organizations. It just shows the double standards and the political manipulation. I feel like this is the main problem with these organizations is probably the states. Like, I wish there would be no double standards. But I think, for example, the ICJ, I think it's restored my faith in international law. I still think that, especially now with the current case also on occupation, Mm -hmm. I think it's, it's, uh, it's, yeah. I mean, we'll see the decision, but it depends. I think we, there's no clear-cut answer There's no clear-cut answer. But I, I think you've really shone a lot of light on that because, I mean, people watching on um, who might not be familiar with what has gone on previously between um, Palestine and any of these institutions would really say, well, what's the point if America or its allies are able to shield Israel continuously? But I think, as you said, it's not a clear-cut answer because they are the mechanisms that we have in place and they're there to serve a purpose. But um, behind the scenes, of course, we're hoping that more and more we'll see um, you know, action from the allies um, that'll be pursuant to whatever the decision might be on these cases and hopefully the ICC will also step up as well due to pressure. But just leading on from that, you mentioned one case there, but Shane, um, South Africa um, 
action against Israel under the Genocide Convention is the, the primary case that we're looking at. But of course, it's not the only legal action that's been taken against Israel in uh, recent months. Can you comment further on maybe some of the legal actions that have occurred or proposed legal actions that are very important that have been taken, whether on the international context or within states themselves? And also, um, I mean, we might just have a quick look at the case that's in its third day um, concerning the occupation um, of Palestine by Israel. Yeah, so, I mean, the legal risks for Israel and its political and, and military leaders are, are certainly growing, as well as for states or indeed companies that might be that might be complicit. So, I mean, at the international level, we obviously have the genocide proceedings that we've been talking about. Uh, and Rana has just spoke out about his disappointment, which I would share, in terms of how the International Criminal Court... The International Criminal Court has an ongoing investigation that's um, coming up on three years old. Uh, and we've not yet seen any any arrest warrants. And maybe optimistically, uh, the fact that the ICJ has has taken the step mm-hmm. that it has might add to some form of pressure on the on the prosecutor. Um, you know, we had families of those that have been taken hostage approaching the court seeking for to arrest warrants, and it would be unconscionable for Kareem Khan to go ahead with arrest warrants for those responsible for the hostage taking or indeed the other atrocities on on seventh of October. And then to completely ignore what we've seen taking place in in Gaza as well. So I would be optimistic um, that we that we should see some arrest warrants, hopefully in the coming months. Um, but maybe my optimism yeah. might be might be a little bit misguided. But just to clarify, um, just to, the difference between the two, the ICC there will be individual actions taken in response to war crimes, or um, j- just to make that clarification between the ICJ and ICC. Yeah, so the International Criminal Court uh, only prosecutes individuals. Right. Uh, it, it, it can't take cases against states, and it's, it falls on the prosecutor to, to seek those arrest warrants. So even though states can, can confront the court and ask it to investigate, as can the Security Council, um, it, it falls to the, to the prosecutor to, to seek the arrest warrants, which the court can grant. But the court can't act without, I suppose, direction or request from the, from the prosecutor. Um, you mentioned also the International Court of Justice. So I think the genocide proceedings that are ongoing also cast the advisory opinion that is currently underway in a in a whole new light. So the request for the advisory opinion, which came from the General Assembly uh, around a year ago, effectively is the General Assembly asking the court to respond to a legal question. Question being, what are the legal consequences of Israel's ongoing policies and practices in terms of the prolonged occupation of the Palestinian territories. Um, so those are underway. That is not as lengthy a process as contentious cases. Um, but I certainly think the court being exposed to what's happening in Gaza and looking at through the lens of the Genocide Convention will certainly um, influence its, its views of this broader question as to whether Israel's presence is indeed illegal and whether it should withdraw. And both South Africa and Palestine in their presentations in in the past couple of days, have been referring also to the genocide proceedings. Mm-hmm. I mean, at the international level, we'll see other um, developments, perhaps not cases, but within the UN system, so the special rapporteurs have been very active in relation to what's taking place in Gaza. We have the Commission of Inquiry also examining it. And then the various treaty bodies, I'm sure will have to address it in their, in their concluding observations. Some of them have already made statements like the Committee on Racial Discrimination, uh, the Committee on the Rights of the Child, for example, also. But at the domestic level, 
and uh, both Ramaz and Nadine, I think, have referred to some of these. Yeah. We've seen civil cases, we've seen judicial review, and we've also seen the threat of, of criminal cases. So the, perhaps the most significant civil case uh, was the case taken by the Center for Constitutional Rights in the United States that sought to sue Biden for complicity in genocide. Um, now, that case did not succeed. The judge who listened to Palestinians giving evidence for four hours um, couldn't get over the political question doctrine that, that hampers these cases in the US, where they say, I'm sorry, but this is a matter of foreign policy. I can't intervene here. But the judge said in his concluding remarks, he said, I'm deeply disappointed that the remedy that I wish to give is not available to me. And he said, the US should really reconsider its unflagging support for Israel in this context. So very powerful words from the judge in, in that particular case. As well, then we have judicial review of, of arms um, transfers. Uh, we've seen this taking place in the Netherlands. We've seen an attempted case in the UK, which was just defeated uh, in the High Court. But we have seen other countries, Spain and Italy, for example, ceasing exports of weapons, perhaps based on their obligations under the Arms Trade Treaty. Um, and then we may have criminal cases at the domestic level. So Israel has obligations to prosecute uh, its soldiers for complicity in or, or the commission of international crimes. Um, the UN has documented its poor record in this regard, but you have Israelis who are dual nationals, so they would face legal jeopardy in their in their other countries. And of course, under universal jurisdiction, grave breaches of the Geneva Conventions, which have been documented and are taking place, can be prosecuted at the, at the national level. Um, and Israel would be advised to take these cases domestically Mm -hmm. or as facing the possibility of prosecutions at, at the International Criminal Court. Really? Okay, so there's lots um, happening and I suppose one one case may have another a bearing on another case, so it's quite significant. And as you said, the, the case that's ongoing at the moment around um, the illegal occupation is, is historical in itself. And we'll maybe address that again on um, this podcast. But just to mention the Israel's response and the P the Prime Minister's office come out very quickly, sharply yesterday in respect of the um, ongoing case before the ICJ saying that Israel does not recognise the legitimacy of the discussion at The Hague regarding the legality of the occupation, a move designed to harm Israel's right to defend itself against existential threats and so on and so forth. So there is this still this Ex, um, kind of exceptionalism and that they will not Israel will not be bound by any decision and they will not act on any decision they seem to be rejecting any form of criticism outright so I mean do we think that I mean, this is more of a political question I guess but the more legal action that we see and the more activity at an international level which may shift the attitudes of Israel's ally do we think that this might make a difference on the ground or is that just a kind of pie-in-the-sky question? I mean, we'd, we'd hope that it would. I mean, I think the sort of language that we see coming from Israeli leaders in relation to the ICJ proceedings, both the current and the, both the advisory opinion and the genocide proceedings, um, is language that, you know, might sit well uh, domestically, mm -hmm. but it's not something that the, the learned judges of the International Court of Justice will be persuaded by. Yeah. Um, so to, to denounce the proceedings as a blood libel or as anti-Semitic, etc., um, that's not something that's going to persuade persuade the judges. Mm. And when the judges do make their determinations, like they did in the provisional measures order, even though we see various levels of condemnation coming from from Israel, some selective findings, they say, oh, well, it's supported our right to self-defense and it's supported 
Uh, we support the statement about the release of the hostages, but we don't need to be lectured to. Um, we Our commitment to international law is unwavering, etc., and then denouncing it in various other terms. Again, we don't see those denunciations coming from states that are regularly appearing before the court, who nominate their nationals to sit as judges before the court, and who generally abide by the findings of the court. Mm-hmm. So while Israel, like Russia, um, becomes more of a pariah state and doesn't abide by these rulings, other countries who take it much more seriously um, do abide by the findings of the court mm-hmm. um, and will uh, not go against this and will have to review their own their own conduct and their own potential complicity in this in this mm-hmm. context, which you would hope then would have a have an impact on the ground. Now that being said, it's not the court isn't itself generally given the task of you know ending atrocities, maintaining international peace and security. That's something for the political bodies like the Security Council, which has failed, failed miserably, as we've already discussed. And it's, it's states that have those responsibilities to those organizations, and it's the United States veto in particular that has present, prevented the imposition of a, of a ceasefire. Yeah. Mm. Remains to be seen. But um, I suppose just finally, and we've, we've answered this in kind of a, a roundabout way, but I'm interested in getting everybody's view. Um, so just aside from maybe analysing the legal aspects of the action taken under under the Genocide Convention, but also in respect of the other issues that you just, that all of you have, have touched on um, in terms of legal action, historically, politically and socially, how impactful and how meaningful are these some of these actions are very unprecedented and we know that they're historical but what does this mean in terms of change for Palestine and for Palestinians what do they feel um is is or if anything is changing and making an impact on on them um you know outside the legal aspect of things just anyone's opinion it is significant not only from a legal perspective but also like historically and politically and socially, the fact that the, these proceedings were initiated by South Africa, which is a country that has confronted its own history of apartheid, great human rights violations. Uh, so the fact that it it, uh, it led these proceedings is, is a breakthrough moment, and it just shows that uh, it shows that the significance of uh, these proceedings. But also, uh, I mean, the fact I mean for Palestinians, as I said, as I said, they've tried everything. So this is actually the first time that Israel sits before a court and uh, is being well tried for the commission of genocide. Um, it's 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 of course it's something significant. And here it's important to mention, like as uh, Bas Segel, who was a renowned professor of Holocaust and genocide studies, said that Israel was born in impunity. So. Every time Israel commits a human rights violation, we see a lot of states, especially Western states, defending and giving justifications for Israel to commit all of these violations. So I think this decision pushes this narrative and pushes the notion that Israel's Western supporters can no longer seek refuge behind um, like this weaponization of anti-Semitism. Uh, to evade accountability. It just shows that international law applies equally to everyone. And of course, this is very important because all what Palestinians are asking uh, for is to actually abide by international law, is for international law to be implemented, for uh, for Israel to respect their human rights, uh, to respect uh, their uh, right to self-determination, to be free from occupation. So, of course, from this perspective, it's very 
significant. Although I'm not sure how, like practically speaking, I don't know if it will change that much. I mean, the fact that this is still waging, yeah. uh, it's genocide against Palestinians, of tells course. us how Israel perceives international law. But I still think it's, a, it's an important step. I would say it's like a, a first step towards holding Israel accountable. But it will still will take some years for actually for change to happen, as long as the United States and its allies keep supporting Israel and keep providing justification. Uh, the U.S. again, again voted for the third time, yeah. uh, vetoed uh, a motion for ceasefire, mm-hmm. which tells us a lot how like the U.S. does not really care about human rights, and of course Israel. Yeah, I just want to say that um, I think it gave some sort of hope. Um, even though, as Rama said, we're seeing an escalation and um, no change. But even if it's not hope, let's say it, it opened um, our eyes, the whole world, for all the possible avenues that we can refer to and use to do such change. It reminded us of the power of people to demand justice and to hold their governments accountable, which have proven that they are the primary uh, problem within all of this, because it's not about a law that is not sufficient Mm -hmm. to provide us with justice, but it's about the willpower and political interests and and the governments and so on. Um, So yeah, I think this ruling and this case and how it's uh, going is is allowing for um, a shift in either the narrative, but also of people's perception towards um, the key actors in the international arena, the government, and how the world should be working versus how it's actually working. Yeah. So I think there's no going back from many of the many of the truths that has been revealed to us. And I, and I think there's a lot of power behind uh, of what's happening. Yeah, just to add to that, I mean, I think there was very significant symbolism in the in the presentation of the case that the South African team were able to stand up, and you could see the Palestinian advocates behind them who were effectively having their day not just in court but in in the world court, um, and the South Africans were able to present uninterrupted for three hours. Um, what is taking place and what is happening in Gaza and contextualizing it uh, in the context of, of apartheid and a long, a long history of displacement uh, and occupation. Uh, and then I think to have South African lawyers as well as the court itself in turn to read out the words of, of UN officials um, who have been documenting and warning of the humanitarian catastrophe as well as restating the dehumanizing and damning words of Israeli officials. I think that was incredibly powerful at the court. Um, the court as well then recognized effectively the Palestinian experience and, and of course Palestinian identity by saying that Palestinians are a group protected under the, under the Genocide Convention, having previously recognized them as a people entitled to right to self-determination. I think that's important to come from the court because of course there's a long-standing and continuing denial that the Palestinians are a separate identifiable group and I think that's important symbolically um, and also legally from, from the International Court of Justice. You've really been so generous with your time, everybody, and what you shared has been really informative and really insightful. 
And I suppose we just have to sit and watch how things unfold. But um, I'd like to thank all three of you for joining me today. It's been really, really interesting. Thanks, Sarah. Not at all. Thank you for having us. Having us. Thanks everyone for joining me today. If you like the show, please remember to share and leave a review if you have a moment. And you can also check out our website, www.activistlawyer.com, where you will see some blog articles written by our guests and contributors, as well as some fabulous Activist Lawyer merchandise. This podcast was recorded in Granite Podcast Studio. Interested in starting up your own podcast, but don't know how? Granite Podcast Studio can help. Record your podcast in our state-of-the-art studio, which is based in the heart of Newry City. Our studio has cutting-edge and user-friendly technology and can seat up to four people. We also provide an editing service for our team using your guidance and editing notes to provide you with a flawless finished product, leaving your listeners wanting more. For more information on how you can get started, visit www.granitepodcaststudio.com.